I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality." When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. It's good to remind ourselves of the events as they had transpired over the previous 36 hours on that first Easter weekend. Friday, of course, involved the betrayal, the arrest, the sentencing, the crucifixion, and the burial of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, all according to the set purpose and foreknowledge of God. It was all unfolding according to plan. That's what made it Good Friday, after all. God was demonstrating his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then came Saturday, what's been known by some as Silent Saturday. There were no more shouts of crucify him, and there were not yet shouts that Christ is risen. To the disciples, it seemed that all hope was in fact lost. But again, even the silence was a sign that all things were unfolding just as they had been foretold. Because Jesus had said, Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days, so too will I be in the belly of the earth, in the heart of the earth, for three days. And then early Sunday morning, some of Jesus' friends returned to finish anointing his body for burial, but they found the stone to the tomb rolled away. They saw that the tomb was empty, that the grave clothes were folded and seated, uh, sitting on a pile. There was an angel sitting there saying, he is not here, he is risen. And with that, everything sad began to become untrue. And that became the central message of Christianity. Christ is risen. The message of a crucified and resurrected Jesus who is God in the flesh, who died on a cross to bear God's wrath for our sin and then rose to confirm the truth of everything he taught and to signal that death's ultimate defeat had happened. That is the message of Christianity and it spread, has spread, continues to spread all throughout the world. The Apostle Paul in our passage for this morning, and and really the chapter as a whole, I'll refer to different parts of 1 Corinthians 15 as we make our way through, but here in this chapter, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul is doing two things. He's confirming the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and he's also talking about the meaning of his resurrection for each and every one of us. 
Those twin topics, the reality of the resurrection and its meaning for our lives, continue to be of central importance today. Because again, at the heart of Christianity is a resurrected Christ. There is no gospel without it. It is the foundation of Christian hope for this life and the life to come. There's no meaning in this life. There's no peace in the face of death, and there's no promise of eternal life without the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's a pretty bold claim. It's all-encompassing. There's no meaning in this life. There's no comfort in the face of death, and there is no meaning when it comes to life after death apart from the reality of this singular event in human history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So if you're here and you're a skeptic, my prayer is that you'll be willing to explore what Christianity claims about the reality of the resurrection. As you hear it, you know, being, being preached by me, but also over the days and the weeks, perhaps the months to come, to really consider the claims of Christianity. And if you're struggling with a sense of meaningless when it comes to life or fear in the face of death, I pray that you'll embrace the meaning of the resurrection for yourself this morning, perhaps for the very first time, by putting your faith in Jesus Christ for your salvation. If you are a Christian and you have embraced the reality of the resurrection, but struggle with those same fears about death and questions about life after death and, and even question whether the things we do in this life really matter, then I pray that you will more deeply embrace the meaning of the resurrection as well. So two things we're going to consider this morning. First, the reality of the resurrection, and then second, the meaning of the resurrection. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come before you this morning, we do pray that this great and glorious truth, that you, Lord Jesus, are risen, would sink deeply into our hearts. Lord, allow this truth to challenge our, our thinking, to challenge the way in which we live, but ultimately, O oh Lord, to bring us comfort and joy, knowing that because you are alive, all who look to you in faith, so too shall live. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So first, the reality of the resurrection. Let me just step back and ask again that question, which you know for, you know, for me is a rhetorical question. Does it matter? Right? Perhaps you are here this morning, you're wondering, does it really matter if the resurrection is true? Can you have Christianity without the resurrection? Can you still have all the, the, you know, the good things about Christianity without the radical claim that Christ is risen? Peter Jennings was a news anchor, national news anchor, a number of years ago, and he said this, I believe in Christianity, but I'm not so certain about the resurrection. And so the idea of you know, kind of trying to embrace Christianity but not being sure about the resurrection, it's not a, not a thing that doesn't happen. It's, it's very common. But to say I believe in Christianity, but I'm not so sure about the resurrection, really is akin to saying I believe in breathable air, but I'm not so sure about oxygen. I mean, the two things have to go together. There's no separating them. There's no Christianity without the resurrected Christ. C.S. Lewis, the the famous apologist and author said this, if Christianity, if false, is, is of no importance, if true, it's of infinite importance, what it cannot be is of limited importance. And because the truth of Christianity hinges on the reality of the resurrection, we can say that if the resurrection is false, 
then Christianity is false and it's of no importance. But if the resurrection is true, then Christianity is true and it cannot be to you simply of limited importance. It must be of infinite importance. But again, if Christ is not risen, Christianity is meaningless. Paul says the same thing here in our, in our uh, chapter. I'll read verses 17 through 19 for you. If you have your Bibles open, you can read along with me there. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 17 through 19. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep, which is the way of speaking in you know, biblical language of dying... Then those also who have died in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Again, Christianity rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. The resurrection, if true, means that Christianity is of infinite importance. The resurrection is a claim that must be reckoned with. It must be reckoned with. It must be considered. So why believe in the truth of the resurrection? Now, every Easter, I like to you know, bring out some, some proofs, you know, some things that we can look to and say, okay, there's a reason why belief in the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most plausible thing to hold to. And, and one of the things I want to touch on this morning is something that, that Paul actually touches on when we think about the history of this letter and when he wrote it, but also as we consider who he was and to whom he was writing. So let me unpack that for us. In the book of Acts, according to the book of Acts, history of the early church, within 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, there was a mass conversion of Jewish people in Jerusalem as they heard the gospel being proclaimed. Now, remember, it was entirely implausible for Jews to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Most Jews, not all Jews, believed in a general resurrection of God's people at the end of history. No Jewish person believed in a single resurrection of an individual in the middle of history. Furthermore, no Jewish person would have accepted a resurrected Jesus of Nazareth. Remember, Jesus had been crucified on a cross, which was a sign for Jews that he had been cursed by God. So even if they did have a, a, a religion, a worldview that accepted the idea of the resurrection of a single person in the middle of history, they would not have accepted the resurrection of a person cursed by God. And then, of course, one more thing. Christians claim that Jesus was and is God in the flesh and that he should be worshipped as divine, and that was utter blasphemy for Jewish people. The Jews had no desire for the resurrection to be true. This was not in any way wish fulfillment for them. No Jewish person was predisposed to believe in the resurrection, and yet thousands of Jewish people in Jerusalem believed. Acts 2 tells us that 3,000 people believed on the day of Pentecost, just 50 days after the resurrection, and that the Lord added daily to their number those who were being saved. It's also entirely implausible that non-Jewish people, Gentiles in the Greco-Roman world, would have believed in the resurrection. Socrates taught that death is release from the prison of the body, and the Bible talks about a resurrected body 
as being bound up in the very idea at the heart of what it means to be saved. The idea that God would resurrect a human corpse would have been absolutely revolting in the Greco-Roman world. And yet the church did grow like wildfire through the Greco-Roman world. This letter, 1 Corinthians, is written to those non-Jewish, those um, uh, Gentile people. Paul was a Jewish man. He was actually involved with persecuting those Jews who had become Christians in the early 30s AD after the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. He had been persecuting those Jewish converts to Christianity. He had been overseeing even their, their execution. He was tracing them down to Damascus when on the road to Damascus, he was met by Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. Jesus said, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Paul was converted. Paul became a Christian. He was blinded. He was led by hand into Damascus. He met with a man by the name of Ananias who prayed over him, who commissioned him in the name of the Lord to take the gospel to the Gentiles, and it would have been sometime in the mid to late 40s AD, so just 10, 12, maybe 15 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, when Paul wrote these words, when he would have given this message that he alludes to in 1 Corinthians 15. So let me, let me read what he says in the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, but remember what he's doing here in a letter that was written around A.D. 52, so just like 20 to 22 years after Jesus was resurrected, Paul's reminding them of what he said when he was with them. So again, only you know, 10, 12 years or so after the resurrection. Paul says this, beginning in verse 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep, some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And he's writing to people who would have been predisposed to reject the claim of the resurrection and telling them, reminding them of what he said when he was with them, that there were eyewitnesses that they could have conferred with to find out if this was, in fact, the truth. I say all this to remember, to remind us, that the Christian gospel is centered on a claim that the very Son of God became flesh, he was crucified, he was buried, and then he was resurrected. He was raised from the dead. That message exploded in the Greco-Roman world, among Jews in the Roman Empire and among Gentiles, non-Jewish people, and it spread throughout the world it was a message that grew at a time when the truth of the claim that would have been rejected by everybody could have been independently verified, and yet the church grew. So what is the most plausible explanation for the existence of Christianity, and specifically the existence of the Christian church in the first century? It's not wish fulfillment, not among the Jewish people, converts, not among the Gentiles, it's not like everybody was just desperately hoping that this was true. 
And it wasn't like it was something that happened so long ago that people just had to kind of believe it by faith. There were people who were still alive. The most plausible explanation for the existence of the Christian church is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ really happened. So, because it's true, what does it mean? What is the meaning of the resurrection for us today? I think the resurrection speaks to us in terms of our life now, our death, and how to face it. And then the resurrection of Jesus Christ has implications for us in the life to come, life after death. I want to hit on those three things here at the end, but let's start where I ended, which is life after death. That's what Paul's getting to in this passage. We're going to look at verses 50 through 53 in a minute, um, but first, listen or read back with me at verse 20. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 15, 20, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and then he uses this language, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep or those who have died. Jesus is the first fruits. His resurrection body is in some sense prototypical of what our resurrection bodies will be like. And just as in the ancient agricultural world, the first fruits gave an indication of what the harvest would be like, so too the resurrection body of Jesus Christ gives an indication of what our resurrected body will be like. He was a corporeal person. He could be touched. He ate. It was Jesus, risen. Paul goes on to say in verse 37 and 39 that what is sown, our bodies, um, well, let me just read it, verses 37 and 39, and what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. And then in verse 39, he says this, for not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animal, another for birds, and another for fish. So what he's saying there is, our bodies now are like a seed that's being planted. It'll grow. It'll be of the same kind. It won't be something else entirely. Then he goes on to say in verse 44 that what is sown a natural body is raised a spiritual body. By that, he doesn't mean we become spirits floating around on, on clouds. That, that idea that Christian salvation is somehow a disembodied existence finds no basis in Scripture. To have a spiritual body means that we have a life that's fit for the li- a body that's fit for the life of heaven. We walk by faith according to the Spirit now. Then we'll be fit for all eternity to walk in fellowship with God. Those who have died, Paul tells us, will be resurrected. In verse 42, he says, So it is with the resurrection of the dead. That word resurrection literally has to do with a dead corpse being brought to life. It means what it means. We're not changing the language to make it mean something else. And then our text for this morning, verses 50 through 53. Paul tells us, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall all be changed. 
For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. No more sickness. No more weakness. No more pain. No more sadness. No more bodies that perish, that are merely mortal. Raised imperishable. Raised immortal. And yet, of the same kind, you realize you will be more truly you, more fully you then than you have ever been on earth. That's the promise of the resurrection that's coming. When will this happen? Paul told us when Christ returns, at the last trumpet. That's pointing to what the Bible gives us as an indicator of the return of Jesus Christ. It's announcing the end of history, as it were. It will happen in the twinkling of an eye, which is just a Greek phrase that's akin to what we mean when we say in the blink of an eye. It'll happen instantaneously when Christ returns. Those who are still alive at the time that Christ returns will have their bodies instantaneously changed to be imperishable, to be immortal. Those who have died will be raised and their bodies will be resurrected to be as the same. That's the mystery that Paul's talking about. It's the mystery that he's proclaiming in this passage. That which was hidden but is now revealed is that in the moment that Christ returns, Christians will be transformed. But the Bible says more about that day. Revelation 21.5, John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, I am making all things new. God has declared that one day he will set all things right. We will exist as resurrected people on a renewed earth. There's a a part of the Lord of the Rings where after the ring is destroyed on Mount Doom, Sam wakes up from his sleep and he's surprised that he's alive. And he's surprised to see Gandalf. And he says to Gandalf, is everything sad going to come untrue? What's happened to the world? It's a picture of what the Bible says concerning the end of time. That line from Sam isn't just, will all the good things come true? It's, will everything that is sad come untrue? And that captures, again, something of the Christian hope. When, when Jesus says in Revelation 21, behold, I'm making all things new, he's saying that the curse will be rolled back, that the world will be changed. That is a picture that Christianity gives us of what life after death will be like. What does that mean for your death? It's coming. What does that glorious future mean for your death? Well, death is an enemy to be sure. Take a look at verses 54 and following with me. When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your Sting. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Death is an enemy. It's not the way it's supposed to be. But the real terror of death is not the end of life. The real terror of death is eternal separation from God. Knowing God 
forever only in his wrath towards sin and not in his love. But Jesus removed the terror of death by bearing the wrath that we deserve. That, again, is what made Good Friday good. When he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane that that the cup of God's wrath would pass from him, he was realizing that to go to the cross and to drink the cup of God's wrath would entail a moment of separation from the Father who he'd only known for all eternity in perfect love and fellowship. But in that moment, what Jesus Christ was doing in drinking the cup of God's wrath was draining death of its venom. So that for the follower of Jesus Christ, death no longer has a sting. For the Christian, death is not the end. It's not the end. It's the end of the beginning. The best is yet to come. Jesus struck the death blow to death when he rose from the dead, and he will finish off his foe when he returns. For a Christian, therefore, death is just the gateway into the nearer presence of God. This is what the resurrection of Jesus Christ means for our life after death. It's what it means for the Christian as they face death. But it also means something for our life right now. Look at verse 58. Paul says there, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Woody Allen once said that life is as meaningless as waves crashing on a shore. Francis Schaeffer had a different take. He said that every moment of your life, you are casting stones into a pool and making ripples that go on forever. And that line is grounded in the therefore here in verse 58. Paul is saying, because everything that I've said to you about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications of his resurrection for your resurrection and eternal life and the comfort you can have as you face death matters now. You know, the, the, the great caricature of Christians is that we're, of, we're so heavenly minded, we're of no earthly good. But Paul is saying, be so heavenly minded that you are of earthly good because that's the only way to live now is in light of eternity. What you do now, Paul says, matters for eternity. He says your labor is not in vain. We read this passage, and I think we automatically think, well, he's talking about our work of evangelism. He's talking about our, maybe he's talking to pastors and to missionaries. No, he was talking to just regular people who were living regular, ordinary, mundane lives, and he was saying to them, your labor in the Lord, your labor done for his glory is not in vain. I love that he says that here. I love that in the midst of all this, you know, grand and glorious uh, calling to look to the future and hope in the future and trust that the future is glorious because of what Jesus did in the past, he ends by saying that matters right now in your everyday mundane Life as parents and spouses and children and friends, as employees and bosses and office workers, as tradespeople and farmers, your labor, your mundane, everyday routine, because that's all of us, matters. Now, I don't know exactly how that is, and Paul doesn't really tell us in this passage how that is. We can piece together things, like we can, we can think about the fact that Jesus did say, behold, I'm making all things new. 
We can think about what Peter said in 2 Peter 3, that, that the earth is, is not going to be, you know, burned up and annihilated, but purified. And when we remember that work is a gift from the Lord, labor is a way in which we actually reflect who he is. We image him as we work. That it was given to Adam and Eve in the garden to be something that was at the core of what it meant to be human. To take the raw materials of creation and work in such a way that, that the earth and humanity can flourish. It's at the heart of what it means to be human. And then even after sin entered the world, that creation mandate was still held forth. You're still called to steward the earth and to work for human flourishing. Sin has broken in and destroyed everything. God's shalom, God's peace, the right integration of all things has been lost. There's been this incredible disruption. Everything is disintegrated, and yet we're still called to work. (laughs) For God's shalom, for the reintegration of all things. And somehow, in the final day when Jesus returns, not only will our, our bodies be resurrected, but the earth will be purified. In some way, Everything that we do now for the Lord will be made whole, will be purified. Your work now for Jesus, your work now for God's glory, the routine, everything kind of stuff that you do, everyday kind of stuff that you do, simply for his glory, out of faithfulness to him, pursuing human flourishing, being faithful with the ability that he's given you in the place that he's provided for you, that gives a preview of what it means to be fully human And in some way matters for eternity. So Paul says, be steadfast. Be immovable. Be always abounding. Because Christ is risen. Because you too will be resurrected. Because the earth will be made new. Because you need not live now dreading the day of your death, but seeing it for what it is, the gateway into the near presence of God. You are freed up to live today because today matters forever. One of the saddest things, and I see it in my own heart, my own life too much, and I see it in in people that I talk to, is that even though we know Christ is risen, we still live as though it's silent Saturday. We know Jesus died on the cross. We, We know so much more than the disciples did on that day, right? We know why Jesus died. We know that he is risen. We know that the the promises are all true. And yet we still live as though it's silent Saturday. Oh, by God's grace, let us be a, a people confident in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, confident in the resurrection to come, so heavenly minded that we are of all people of the most earthly good. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that your Son, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, is risen from the dead. Because he lives, we know that everything he claimed is true, and everything he promised will come to pass. Because he lives, we know his death on the cross was a sacrifice accepted by you for atonement of sin, that we might be forgiven and accepted. Because he lives, we have a preview of the resurrection life that awaits us. Because he lives, we rejoice offering you all praise and glory in his name. Amen.